0: One of the worst facets of the synthetic view of reality, which leads some to believe truth is a narrative and reality can be discovered only through the senses, is that it makes us content with approximate truths. Phenomenalism leaves us content with forever crawling closer and closer to the truth without ever arriving. Realists would say poverty cannot ever be eradicated, as poverty is relative. However, let's look at a fundamental and inarguable fact. Wealth is produced through work and everyone, with a few inconsequential exceptions, is able to do sufficient work that, theoretically, would lift him or her out of poverty. We only need food to eat, clothes to wear and shelter. This is not an insurmountable objective to aim for. We can, if we so choose, list the caloric intake, the number of outfits and the square footage of a reasonable-size home that will constitute an escape out of poverty. Regardless what numbers we use, it is not possible that an average person in a few years could not do sufficient work that would provide these things. If something much large than the average person was not getting in their way, Does anyone think the average person is unable to accomplish an average amount of work that ought to provide them with an average person's lifestyle? Yet, many able-bodied people seem not able to make headway towards this modest objective. Most reasonable people would find this strange and something to be investigated. But it is not investigated and this ought to be considered a strange thing in itself. Of course, it might well be that there are many experts and elites who are familiar with the problem, and they think they know what the problem is. Full employment puts upward pressure on wages. With higher wages come higher prices. On the other hand, there are other things people might do with the increased income. Employees might invest their wages and acquire investment income. This would mean they might no longer need to work. Only poor people work for the rich. Imagine the chaos if all the employees everywhere could invest their income and retire. What if the regular person was living off the return on capital? Just like the rich do. This is of course sarcasm meant to highlight the fundamental issue. This system can only carry so many wealthy persons. Only so many can afford to live off the proceeds of invested capital. So, let's look at this situation quickly. Investors with surplus income invest this income in capital projects. So, the investor now owns wholly or in part, commercial property. Commercial property is able to generate wealth, that is, income. Income can buy goods and services but return on investments does not increase the amount of goods and services produced. It merely schemes value off of the top of the earnings of a business. Commercial property is composed of assets or capital. Capital is composed of two kinds of property. There is property that can be transformed or processed and there is capital that processes or transforms. A farm, for example, is composed of land and animals. This is transformable capital. Farms also have implements and labor that turn the fixed capital or real capital into portable capital or liquidity. These are the transforming assets. But there is a third kind of capital or property that is more visible if we are dealing with slaves. This is the human capital. Usually, when we think of human capital, we think of labor, but humans are akin to the natural world. In their natural state humans are not worth much. Humans need information to acquire value. The information we have is what permits us to turn assets into equity. Humans can be transformed, but they are also transformable. We are each other's assets as we all seek to transform our fellow man into something worth more. But there is something here that ought to be obvious to all, but it is rarely acknowledged. There is no natural resource that has been created by humans. There are few things in nature, other than air, that can be used as is. We transform assets by labor to make them usable. The asset was not created by us, but we add value to the asset through work to give the asset value. We own the value we added, but we still claim assets as part of our property, as part of our working capital. This poses something of a problem. Man was given dominion over the planet, but this is not an administrative position, it is an operational one. We have authority to modify the planet. We have the authority to transform the natural world into what suits us better. This was so from the beginning. However, if we have dominion, meaning usufructuary rights, there can be no administration of access. This is something idolaters deny. Access to earth is, in the eyes of idolaters, available only to the elect. Idolatry, indeed, cannot exist without restricting access to the things of God. If there was open access to what God has given us, in accordance with Scripture, idolatry would vanish. Idolatry is the worship of the things of this world through an icon or idol. Idolaters organize around an exclusionary idea. Idols serve as a source of legal authority. Legal authority is merely the right to exclude. However, it is not the exclusion that is wrong, it is the arbitrary nature of the idol, the exclusionary element. Perhaps the most common idol is the people or we the people. This idol is prevalent in tribal societies, but in a more restrictive sense. We the people, in a tribe, is limited to a familial group or the people of a totem. The head man and witch doctors serve as tribal heads and the embodiment of the people. These roles become more formal as a nation develops. The president and church replace chieftain and shaman. The totem is more symbolic taking the form of flags and other national symbols. In a democracy the worship of we the people is refined. Yet even in the world's most advanced democracy, the real power is still vested in the president and church. This power is displaced onto the offices itself and the symbols attached to the office. The idolatry is highly formalized and formal. All individual synchronicities are removed. A greater difference in an advanced economy is that capital gains a seat at the table and a say in the policies enacted. But power in a democracy is wielded in the name of and to the ostensible benefit of we the people. Idols justify expropriation as it is done in the name of the idol. But the real beneficiary is the priests of the idol, the ones taking and distributing the sacrifices. Idolatry is the usurpation of the rights of God and the rights of believers to the things of God. The state is the idol of secular humanism. The state replaces dominion with ownership. Ownership is a kind of sacrament. The prospective title holder comes in, performs the required rights, and leaves with a title to a property. The state uses ownership as a way to usurp the power of God. The state provides man with a title that represents legalized dominion. The state steps in and provides those who are worthy with dominion over the things of the earth as a licensee. The dynamics of poverty are tied up with the practices of the occult. Poverty is not created accidentally or as a side effect. It is the direct consequence of the idolatry of man. Once man has claimed jurisdiction over the earth and invalidated the doctrine of dominion, he is able and willing to create scarcity. The poor do not put their faith in God. The poor worship the state. Their faith is transferred to the state and to elect the owners of property. They worship the system that offers them, or seems to, the tools needed to emerge from poverty. However, this success all hinges on how faithfully they serve the system, whether this be capitalism or communism. Idols represent the idolater, in some respect. Even voting in a politician is a form of idolatry. Politicians attempt to model the voter and to provide a larger-than-life version of the voter. This turns him into an idol. An idol makes the ideal of a group. Manifest. An idol is a type of ideogram that symbolically represents a core ideal. We use totems to represent our group, hoping that some trait of the animal will convey the main position or values of the group. This might be as harmless as the mascot of a sports team or as significant as the totem animal of a tribe. In every case, the cult focuses on the idol as the spirit of the group and a way to externalize the deification of the group. The supremacy of the totem animal is the supremacy of the tribe or other group. All of this might be passed off as harmless superstition, but it is not done without effect. The cult, through its god, becomes the chosen ones. By means of the idol the worshippers take on a single identity. It is no long I who acts but I as a manifestation of the idol. The faithful project the will of the idol as the idol inculcates the mind of the worshipper. This might be nothing more than a curiosity, one primitive tribe venerating its eagle god where another worships a bare image. But these oddities become more serious when we get to where the group begins to act out the will of the god. The Nazis were driven by an ideology centered on race. Their symbology was more abstract than that of a primitive tribe, but it was still designed to project a sense of power. As one saluted the swastika, one identified with the god that was the Aryan race. The idol is mystical in that it serves to meld worshippers into the one identity as a mimicry and indeed mockery of God's church. The symbols and accoutrements of the Nazis were all designed to project the image of the Uber Mention. The difference between BLM and fascism is that fascists projected their power with greater effect than BLM, meaning the idols of the fascist were more empowering and motivating than the image BLM presented. These examples of idolatry may not seem to have much to do with poverty, but idolatry is the cause of poverty. The idol is not merely a branding device, it is a legitimizing tool. The idol distills the essence of the idolater and enshrines it into a motif or symbol. The symbol or idol becomes a visible form of the group. The group projects itself into and onto the idol. In protecting and defending the symbol the group projects its power onto those who identify with the idol. The idol, in other words, is a mechanism of self-government or even self-oppression. The people are the power, and the power of the people is projected onto its totem. The state in modern democracies becomes the power of the people. In enacting policies and programs, the state projects the power of the people back onto itself. Thus, the idol is both the idolater and the symbology. The power of the tribe and the cult is projected outwards onto the symbols of the group and inwards through the group's association with the cultic symbol. The poor functions much as a tribe. The poor are not the people. Because of their identity, they take on the persona of a people set apart. They have an identity given to them because of their place in the economics of the community. The image of the poor is in one sense a cultic symbol. The poor is an imagery employed by politicians and the poor themselves to give a victim group a cultic image. Through this imagery, the poor venerate themselves. Having gained virtue by their own hand, they no longer need to earn virtue. They are entitled to the offerings due a god. There are two kinds of being, the kind that serves and the kind that is served. The being served is either god or an idol. The god that is served is spiritual, meaning the relationship is conceptual, not physical. It is more akin to a conversation than an operational or administrative relationship. The idol that is served is just a mirror image. We give because in giving we get. Idols are akin to a vending machine. We serve them because it is self-rewarding. We give to the image in the mirror. This is why atheists tend to think God ought to be similar to a liberal parent, simple to manipulate and easy to exploit. In the first case the God is supreme and worshipped because he is God. Idols are worshipped because he represents the image and interests of the worshipper. Idols that do not reflect the needs or the worshipper are discarded. The god of war is of no purpose unless it blesses all those who wish to wage war with victory. This is why false gods take many forms. They have to represent not just a human perspective but particular individual concerns such as war or good health. In more sophisticated cases, the idol is buttressed by laws. In the case of the poor, the priests minister to the needs of the poor In the guise of social workers. Herein is the problem. The poor justify their poverty by blaming it on a lack of money. This is not poverty. The poor are not in control of the money supply and see no path to acquiring it, so they are in their own eyes and in the doctrines of their cult, blameless victims of circumstance. Being poor they are victims of an enemy which in their mythology is waging war against them, depriving them of their rights. The non-poor are, therefore required to make penance. This is the only way an inversion of power can be imposed. Weakness is turned into a virtue and power becomes a crime. The image created of the poor justifies the subsidization of the poor, they are entitled to the penance of the wealthy. This is what is not understood about the poor and other intersectional identities. If poverty was a sin, the poor could not make a career out of being poor. The poor become parasites almost as a way to give the rest of us a way to do penance for our success. Poverty and the image of the poor are icons the rest of us are taught to revere. Wealth becomes the sin that needs to be expunged. There is a spiritual war being waged against the world. The icons and gods of this world are created to divide us. It is not that the wealthy are the good people and the poor the bad, nor is the reverse true. We are all victims of the same system. This is spiritual warfare, not a war of one group of persons against another. The war is against the divisions and those who create them. We must live in the spirit and build the church. That is the only way to defeat the dynamics of poverty.